So it's Easter. In our tradition, uh, the Catholic tradition, Lutherans, uh, many Presbyterians, a lot, of, a lot of the church around the world, for them, for us, Easter is not just one day. It's a season. It's, it's 50 days from Easter Sunday until the day of Pentecost. It's 50 days of reflecting and celebrating and rejoicing in this fact that Christ rose from the dead. So today is the third Sunday of Easter. And like we've done for the two previous Sundays, today we are listening for the voice of God to us, to our church, through these scriptural accounts of the resurrected Christ. If you have a Bible, turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 24, and we're picking up in verse 36. Luke chapter 24, in verse 36. Now, at this point in Luke's gospel, there's a problem. Jesus' followers are aware that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead, and he's been showing up and having conversations and exchanges with various disciples and followers of his. The problem is that his closest disciples, they were the 12, now it's the 11, they're dumbstruck. They're dumbstruck with regard to the significance of the resurrection. They can't wrap their minds around it. Look at verse 36. As they were talking about these things. Now that's the things of the resurrection. They're talking about how various people have encountered Jesus. They're talking about the fact that they saw him die. That he was put in a tomb. And this is just mind-boggling that somebody is coming back from the dead. So they're talking about it. And in verse 36 it says, As they were talking about these things... Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now this is the problem. The response of the disciples to Jesus' appearance among them, their response, it demonstrates that they have an unreconstructed worldview. And what I mean by that is the way they thought about reality does not allow for somebody to come back from the dead. That's most people in the world today. Right, Their way of thinking about life and death and the reality and what happens to people, it just did not allow for this. And then he shows up in the room. Have you ever had an experience with someone and it just does not fit what you had been led to believe about that person? You know, this can happen in marriages where all of a sudden something is revealed, right? And 20 years, 30 years of history is all of a sudden rewritten. This happens to people, doesn't it? Where you you hear something that is so out of touch with the, the way you've been processing things that you can't even bring yourself to believe it, even in the face of incontrovertible evidence. I mean, this, this had to be like what was going on when Copernicus, right, was trying to convince the world that the earth wasn't the center, 
And he was giving evidence that the sun was the center of things and the earth was moving around it. And every, the whole weight of civilization was pushing against Copernicus. You know why? Because in order for what Copernicus to say to be true, everything had to be rewritten. Religion, science, the way people thought and conceived of themselves and their place in the universe, and the fact that they had a worldview that did not allow for heliocentrism meant that Copernicus's theories took a very long time to take root. Because that's exactly what happens when you encounter an event that doesn't compute for your way of seeing the world. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead just did not compute for the disciples. They believe in God. They believe that God is at work in the world. But Jesus rising from the dead does not compute with their way of understanding God's project in this world. Now that's the same for a lot of people today. They believe in God. They believe God might be at, is at work in the world, but these things we claim about Christ, that He is God in the flesh and He died and He rose from the dead, that does not compute with so many people's understanding of God's project in the world. So this is the third section of Luke chapter 24. This is the third scene in Luke's final chapter to His gospel. It's the disciples, they can't figure it. They cannot wrap their minds around what's going on. So what happens in Luke 24, verses 36 to 49, is that Jesus shows up and he tries to sort them out. He tries to help them understand how his resurrection of the dead is in line with God's purposes in the world and with all that is going on before them. So he does this in three ways. First, in verses 38 to 43... He explains to them what his resurrection of the, from the dead, what that means for our life after death. Secondly, in verses 44 to 47, he explains what his resurrection from the dead means for life right now. And then third, verses 48 to 49, he explains what the resurrection of the dead has to do with our role and God's project in this world. Now, we only are going to deal with the first two of those things this morning. So let's jump in. Look at verse 38. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So Jesus offers two proofs that he really has been raised from the dead and that he's a real person with a real body. First proof, he shows him his hands and his feet. He says, look, you can see me, you can feel me, you can taste me, you can touch me. Now, probably what's going on here is he's showing them the scars, right? This is the same me. I'm the same one. And the second proof, is there at the end where he says, okay, give me something to eat. And he eats in front of them. He's doing two things. Number one, he's showing them that he's not a zombie. 
They didn't have the word zombie, but they did have the notion it was an option within their worldview that this is a cadaver brought back to life. He's saying to them, that is not what I am. I am not a cadaver brought back to life. And the second thing he's doing is he's saying, I'm not a ghost. I'm not a disembodied spirit. I'm not a phantom, right? Said this last week, right? He's not moaning myrtle. Right? He's actually the one who was alive, who is now brought back to life. Every line of this passage, almost every word, demonstrates this point. That the risen Jesus is firmly and solidly embodied. Now, every Sunday, in the creed, we confess, I believe... In the resurrection, anybody know this part? From the dead. This is the type of resurrection we're confessing. This is, when we say in the creed every Sunday, I believe in the resurrection from the dead, we are not talking about heaven. We're not talking about life after death. Almost everybody believes in some form of life after death. Not everybody, but in our culture, the significant majority do. If you mean by life after death, this idea that when Christians die, our spirit goes to be with God. Now that is true. We Christians believe that. But that is not what the creed is talking about. It is not talking about that after you die, your spirit goes to be with God. This idea that Christians are going to pass through death, right? And that we're going to go to heaven and be in the presence of God. That's something we believe, but it is not the point of that line in the creed. It's not the point of what's going on here in Luke's gospel. I believe in the resurrection of the dead is confessing what happens after that moment when your spirit is with God in heaven. It's confessing the next part of the story. Not that little moment that the Bible talks very little about. It's talking about the part of the story that the Bible talks most about. It's saying that the story doesn't end with your spirit disengaged from your body with God in heaven. It's saying that there will come a day when Christ will return and we will experience what Christ experienced on Easter morning. We will be raised with bodies from the dead. Just like Jesus was raised and just like Jesus had a real body that could really eat and really be touched. That's what we confess in the creed every week. We believe in that. Now that's far more difficult to explain to the world than life after death. We believe that our new bodies, that the bodies that God will give us, they will not be identical to the bodies we have now. They're going to be different. That's part of what's going on here, right? Jesus is different, but he's the same. Sometimes when they see him, they don't even recognize him in these post-resurrection accounts. He can eat, but he can also pass through a closed door. This is some sort of transphysicality that's beyond our notion of the way our bodies work now. The idea is that God is going to make a new physical material. And unlike our cells and our DNA that we have now, this new material, it will be just as physical as we are now. However, it will not 
be subject to death and decay. Now, I'm not saying you have to believe that. I'm saying we've got to be honest with Scripture. That is what Scripture is claiming. In, in this case, with Jesus, it happened right away, right? There wasn't the decomposition effect going on to his body. I mean, three days later, he's raised from the dead. His body didn't decompose. For Jesus, that body that died and experienced three days' worth of decomposition, it was transformed. For the rest of us, our bodies will likely push up daisies. Many of us, there's a good chance, many of us, our bodies will be burned, right? Our bones will be turned into ashes. But God will raise us from the dead in a new act of creation. Now think about this. I know that this stretches our minds and our imaginations further than it's comfortable stretching. But think about how conditioned we are by a world of sin and death. And it makes it so hard for us to imagine a world without death and without decay. But that is part of the challenge of the gospel. To be a Christian is to accept that. That's why Luke is finishing his gospel with the disciples' difficulty in accepting that. If your mind is reeling from trying to take all of this in, then you're in good company. So we're Pe- so was Peter's and John's and all of it's it's not that's exact. Look at verse forty-one. And while they still disbelieved for joy and marveling, he was saying to them, "Have you anything to eat?" It's interesting, isn't it, that Luke attributes their disbelief to what? Doesn't that isn't that an odd? Did you catch that they disbelieved because of joy? You know what's going on? It's just too good to be true. I mean, what I've just told you that you're going to get a new body and the whole universe is going to get, be made new and you're going to get to experience not some Casper convention in the sky, right? But you're going to get to experience an embodied physical life. The Rocky Mountains that you love to look at now, just wait until they are unleashed. You're going to get to experience that. And you're going to get to experience relationships with people now that you have relationships with now. But guess what's going to be absent from those relationships? Pain and suffering and miscommunication and betrayal and sin and evil and death and decay. You're going to get to experience a fully... You're not going to get this life wiped away. You're going to get this life right. That's too good to be true, right? I mean, can you imagine Messiah Healed. And all the junk going on in Messiahland right now with the government trying to move a nomadic people into a form of land ownership that is going to wreck their society. All that's going to be gone. Can you imagine the Serengeti? Even more majestic. And not only that, your body getting to fully enjoy it. And fully relate to this world and this cosmos. The disciples disbelieved for joy. Are you serious? Do I really get that? Look, when your kids ask you what's heaven like, tell them, oh, forget about heaven. Wait till the new heavens and the new earth. Heaven is that temporary moment where you're stopping off as a spirit in God's presence. But the Bible is clear. In that moment, you are waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for what? For your new body and the resurrection of the dead and the renewal of all things. Tell your kids they're going to run with cheetahs and swim with dolphins. 
that the blues will be bluer and the greens will be greener and chocolate will be even better. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, you know what's going on here? In all of the Gospels, they're saying in the same way God at one moment made a, a, a creation, let there be light, He's going to do something along those same lines again. The only parallel for the new heavens and the new earth is the first act of creation. He's going to do an act on parallel with that again, and you get to be a part of it. They disbelieved for joy. It's going to happen again. You mean again God is going to step in and, and make this thing so that it's right? But this time, sin and death and evil will never gain a stronghold. And we get to experience that forever and ever. You see, humans are not the only immortal things. This is my father's world. The Rocky Mountains are immortal. Now we know from physics that that's going to require an act of God because the universe is expanding at a rate that there is going to be a breakdown. We know this from the the law of thermodynamics. We know that's what's going on. We're saying to the world and to the science community, yes, our universe is not going to last forever. This isn't going to happen by a natural process. It's going to happen by the same supernatural process that got the whole thing started. The voice of God making a new creation. And if you believe in Jesus, you can be a part of that. If you don't believe in Jesus, you won't be a part of that. It's too good to be true. And the disciples are almost paralyzed by this fact. The scene doesn't stop there. Verse 44. He said to them, these are my words. This is what I've been telling you all along. You know, but you can tell people can look at evidence forever, right? But if their, if their worldview doesn't compute that evidence, it has a way of just blocking it off. Jesus says, I've not, I've been telling you this all along while I was with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So the, the coming of Jesus was nothing less than the next step in God's program for this world, the healing of the universe, the making of all things new. Jesus' life and death and resurrection, it's the climax of God's program with the cosmos. And the whole storyline of the Bible is pointing to this pivotal moment that the Christ, the Messiah, God's own Son, would suffer the full reality of brokenness and death and decay and sin and evil. And number two, that on the third day, he would conquer death. He would rise from the dead. That his death and his resurrection would be the death of death and the death of decay. And number three, that now repentance and forgiveness should be proclaimed... In his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Look, Jesus is saying that the crucifixion and resurrection was not an adjustment in God's program. This road was in the design all along. Look again at the phrase, verse 47. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be, not will be. 
See, earlier it was stuff like the Christ will suffer and die, right? And all of a sudden, we've entered into a conditional type statement, right? It should be proclaimed in His name. You know what Luke is doing by changing that one little word from will to should? Luke, the author of the gospel, is saying to the readers of his gospel, God is saying to you and to me, you have an option. What is your response? See, all of a sudden you're reading along a story and now you are confronted with a choice. Will you believe this account of reality? And will you proclaim it? Or will you reject this account of reality? Will you reject God's purpose in the world? Will you be like the religious leaders earlier in the story who refused God's program? Or will you follow the tax collectors, the bad people in the story, who actually accept God's program? Will you do what the sinners in Luke's gospel did? Will you actually change your way of life and orient your way of living around God's purposes with the world? Around God's project of redemption? Will you respond like um, Zechariah in the early part of Luke's gospel? Will you respond to this too good to be true message like Zechariah? His response was hesitance and questioning. Are you going to be like Mary? What was her response? It was willingness and submission and pondering. See, Luke is not writing a a bald newspaper account just to give you some account of an event. He's writing with an agenda. He's got an ideology. He's invading your life. He's writing this in such a way that he's saying, Rick, you gotta, you got to decide how you're going to act about this. How are you going to respond to this? Josh, what are you going to do about this? What's your response? Are you aligning your life with God's redemptive purposes in the world? With God's purpose to bring salvation to all nations? You and I both know that just like in Luke's gospel, where some people accepted and some rejected, in our world today, some reject and some accept, and in our churches, right? I mean, you can go to church, and you can go through all of the forms of religion and all of the rituals, but in your heart and in your way of living, not really have aligned your life with the purposes of God. In the larger scheme, Luke's doing a really interesting thing with the whole issue of fate and determinism throughout his gospel. It was a huge debate in the ancient Middle East at that time, and he's playing off of that debate here. And in the larger scheme of things, Luke is saying, absolutely, God's purposes will be accomplished. We know what God is going to accomplish. He is going to raise Jesus from the dead, and he is going to raise us from the dead, and he is going to make all things new. We can be assured of his total victory against sin and evil and death. But 
other than on the larger scale, it's up for grabs. That's what's going on in Luke's gospel. Other than on the larger scale, God's purposes can be hindered and resisted and flat out rejected, misunderstood, or they can be accepted and embraced and lived out. These are real options for you and for me. At Jesus' trial and crucifixion, we see these options at play. We see Pilate who wants to release Jesus. He really wants to release Jesus, right? He tries several times to release Jesus. But finally, Pilate gives in to his political ambition and yields to the will of the people. The will of the chief priests and the leaders. And then there's Joseph of Arimathea who's a part of the religious leadership that is forcing Pilate to crucify Jesus. And Joseph of Arimathea, who is a part of a whole system pushing him to reject God, actually extricates him from that, himself from that system and resists that and instead accepts the work of God into his life. What are you going to be? Don't blame it on your culture. Don't blame it on your system. What are you going to do with the Christ? Look at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. The first temptation, Jesus is encouraged to assert his independence from God in Luke's account of the temptation. In the second temptation, the devil invites Jesus to give his allegiance to the devil. In the third temptation, the devil urges Jesus to act like he's obeying God while in fact he's actually working for a side agenda. What all of this shows is that you can resist. You can oppose God. And if you do, you will not get the privilege of the new heavens and the new earth. It is a real option. Again, on the larger scale, God's purposes will be accomplished. Disbelief, anger, misunderstanding... Even the murder of God's son cannot derail God's purposes for his creation. Even hostility to God and his plan will be gathered up and used to serve that plan. The important question for each of us is how will you respond to God's program of redemption Revealed in Jesus Christ. And through this scripture, through that one word change, should be proclaimed. Luke is saying to his audience, and the Spirit of God is saying to you and to me, what will it be? But you know what it is more than that? It is the Spirit of God inviting you, begging you, Beseeching you, come and join the family of God. Yield yourself to God's work in this world. Align your life with God's purposes. Will you be like Mary? When the angel shows up and says, here's what I'm going to do. You're going to have a baby. And that baby's going to be the Messiah. You know what Mary's response was? Here am I. Servant of the Lord, 
Let it be to me according to your word. She unreservedly embraces the purpose of God without regard to the personal cost to herself. And there was a huge cost to herself. She's an unwed, pregnant teenager in a far more hostile environment than ours for such a set of circumstances. She submits to God's purposes. The invitation for you is to choose. Will you turn your back on your previous loyalties, on your commitments that are out of line with God's commitment, with God's plan? And will you align yourself fundamentally with God's way? The invitation is for you to shift your allegiance to God's purposes and to go into your normal, everyday life with all of its mundane activities, having accepted the challenge to integrate even the smallest details of your life. Students, how you react to your teachers and to homework. How we react to our enemies. What we do with our bodies. Who we sleep with. How we handle our money. Will you integrate God's purposes with every detail of your life and align every aspect of your life up with the value system of God in His kingdom? Will you embrace a standard of behavior and a way of living that is rooted in a radical alignment with God's purpose? Look at verse 36. As they were talking about these things. Look at verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. And in between, verse 37, they, will st- they were startled and frightened. In verse 41, they still disbelieved. What about you? What is your response to these things? What is your response to Easter? What is your response to God's plan for this world? Is it faith and repentance? If so, you will be forgiven. And get this, you will be raised from the dead. Let's pray.